0: welcome to cases and controversies a supreme court podcast by bloomberg law i'm jordan rubin
1: and i'm kimberly robinson
0: we're heading into the march argument sitting we're going to preview a case that asks if cops can bust into your house without a warrant for your own good we also got a grant this week in a fourth amendment related case merrick garland finally cleared the senate and chief justice roberts is mad about cases and controversies but it's not our fault kimberly What's the chief upset about? (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, I think you're referring to the opinion that we got this week uh, in Uzabunam. And this was a case asking whether nominal damages is enough to keep a case alive or whether if you only have this nominal damages claim, you know, the case is moot. And so the issue here is one that's we, we've seen come up in uh, several different contexts. So this was at the heart of a Second Amendment case a while ago. Um, it's sort of at the sidelines of a different case about whether or not, uh, transgender students can use particular bathrooms in schools. Uh, so this is pretty broad kind of implications and the Supreme court said, yeah, you know, a nominal damage claim is enough to keep a case alive. Um, and as you've suggested, Roberts was not too happy about that. So, um, you know, he's been on the court since 2004 five and this was his first solo descent. So um he stacked up against uh the other justices in an 8-1 opinion. Um, but I gotta say if Roberts was gonna dissent, um, on his own, in any case, it would be in a case like this. We see him really concerned about, uh, what this means for the judiciary and whether or not this is a proper use of, you know, the judicial branches power and, um, all all sorts of concerns about expanding, uh, what courts do. And so that's kind of, his thing yeah it's his thing he's like you know concerned about judges and stuff
0: everybody's got a thing
1: so you mentioned this grant for the mo grant
0: thompson against clark in this case involves sort of a recurring theme that we've been discussing lately barriers to suing law enforcement larry thompson was arrested in new york but the charges were dismissed He then wanted to sue the officers that arrested him for Fourth Amendment violations in what's called a malicious prosecution suit. But under a Supreme Court case, heck against Humphrey, he needed to show the criminal case against him terminated in his favor first. So the circuits are split on what exactly that means, whether it means people need to show their cases ended with affirmative indications of their innocence or just not inconsistent with innocence. So here's that how that played out here. The prosecutors dismissed Thompson's case in the interest of justice, they said. They didn't say anything about his innocence one way or the other. So the Second Circuit, applying the affirmative indication rule, rejected Thompson's suit. So next term, we'll see how the justices settle that split in his case. So that's
1: a Fourth Amendment case for next term. But a Fourth Amendment case for this term is the subject of our deep dive. Jordan, can you tell us a little bit about this case before we talk to our guests?
0: I can, and I will. So this case arises from what the First Circuit called marital discord at the Caniglia residence in Cranston, Rhode Island. During an argument, Edward Caniglia threw a gun on the dining room table and said something like, shoot me now and get it over with. He left the home, but his wife Kim was still worried. He came back, they fought again, and Kim went to stay in a motel for the night. The next morning, she couldn't reach Edward, so she called the police, concerned that he might have committed suicide. Officers went to the home and convinced Edward to go to a nearby hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. He said he only agreed to go because officers said they wouldn't confiscate his firearms. Of course, what happened next is the officers did confiscate them, two guns, magazines and ammunition. Edward eventually got his guns back, but he sued the officers for Second and Fourth Amendment violations. On appeal, the First Circuit ruled for the officers. The court said the case presents, quote, precisely the sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't conundrum that the community caretaking doctrine can help to alleviate, end quote. So that doctrine comes from a 1973 case, Katie against Dombrowski, and there the court approved a police search of the trunk of a car that was towed after an accident. So the question here at the Supreme Court in Caniglia is whether that doctrine extends to the home. And to hear more about this case, let's bring on our guest. David Gans is director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. The center filed an amicus brief supporting Coniglia. David, thanks for joining us to talk about this case.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us why you think this community caretaking doctrine shouldn't extend to the home.
2: Well, so let me just start. This case really raises very fundamental questions about the scope of police power in in America. And it sort of shines a spotlight on how vast the footprint of policing is. And the issue in the case is, can the police invade your home um, when they don't have a warrant, they don't have any suspicion of criminal doing, but simply because they're saying, we want to take care of the community. You know, this is this is wrong sort of, one, we go back to fundamentals, to uh, the Fourth Amendment, to the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment, to the very strong protection that the Fourth Amendment gives against the privacy and personal security of the home. Uh, and the fundamental idea at, at the founding was, uh, you needed a warrant um, based on probable cause to invade the home. You know, the Fourth Amendment was the response uh, to British abuses that allowed indiscriminate surges and seizures of the home. And one thing that is reflected both in the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment and in the court's cases is the home uh, gets very strong protection. It is sort of first among equals, uh, as Justice Scalia famously uh, said in a, in a case a number of years ago. You know, and you look at this idea of community caretaking. So we're in a situation where the police aren't saying, we need to enter the home because we're worried about a criminal violation. We're not trying to catch criminals. We're doing it simply based on this very vague, open-ended, we want to take care of the community. And that is an incredible expansion of police power that really transgresses this kind of fundamental principle that's rooted in uh, the text and history of the Fourth Amendment that we are protected in our homes against uh, the power of the police to enter.
0: So in this case, nothing bad wound up happening to the people in the house, but could you not foresee a situation where, but for this community caretaking exception extending into the home, something bad could happen, or is it just that doesn't matter under the Fourth Amendment?
2: Well, so it's important to realize that there are already existing doctrines uh, that give the police the power to enter for exigent circumstances. There's also a separate doctrine uh, that's known as the emergency aid doctrine. Uh, The officers in this case didn't didn't even invoke those. And I think the court below recognized they wouldn't really fit. This was not an emergency situation of any kind. And so instead they're going for really a sweeping expansion of police power, um, you know, in a circumstance in which there's no claim of criminal wrongdoing. Um, And, you know, we think of when we think of the police and their claims to violate our personal security, we're usually thinking about it in the context of uh, enforcing criminal laws, which is, I think, usually seen as kind of the core of what the police are are supposed to do. And here, uh, you have kind of a very broad claim that it doesn't have to be criminal at all. It can simply be uh, to take care of the community. And that is really a far reaching, expansion of power that really cuts against both what the court has recognized and what the Fourth Amendment was centrally about. And if the police can simply say, we're going to enter the home based on this sort of nebulous interest, that really guts the core of the Fourth Amendment. And so, you know, this case has not gotten that much attention, but it really uh, is incredibly important when we think about limiting police abuse of power
1: so um you know this case involves the seizure of guns and we have uh, a court where we've got a pretty conservative court um with a 6-3 majority wondering if you think that second amendment considerations will come into play here um as opposed to as if this case had come up in a different context
2: i mean that's interesting i uh Certainly, I think this is a case that, you know, I think has a very wide array of amicus support for, um, across a lot of different groups. There's the ACLU and, 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 and Constitutional Capability Center, which are uh, tend to be more progressive. There's a lot of Second Amendment groups. There's Cato. There's IJ. It's possible that some of those issues may, there may be some discussion of the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, I think this case presents a very important Fourth Amendment uh consideration and i think different groups across the ideological spectrum see a great danger to freedom and to protection of, of the constitution from allowing the police to to enter uh when there's no fear of criminal wrongdoing but it's simply community caretaking there's a great fear and I, you know i think about this case kind of against the backdrop of everything that's happening since george floyd was killed almost a year ago and you know one of the lessons is you know we need to sort of think about what the police do and when when it's important to have someone who's trained and designed to use force and inflict harm and when we should think about situations where we don't need the police to uh, to enter and use force and so some groups i think will come at this from a a perspective of limiting racial abuses uh you know that have had such tragic results and some years, I think some of the other groups uh, have come at, at this at fears that the police will uh, uh, enter unlawfully and then and use that power to uh, seize property like guns that they should not have seized in this case. Um, and so, you know, I think there are a lot of different groups that come at, come at this case uh, in different aspects, but they together sort of pose that giving the police this kind of awesome power uh, really threatens... F- Fundamental constitutional values.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, it, it seems like there's kind of um, two ways to look at this problem. As you mentioned, you know, there's this issue of um, what do we ask the police to do in this community caretaking exception. You know, it applies when we're asking police to do things kind of out of the realm of what we consider, um, you know, the job of a police officer. And so you can either you can either cut back on what. Uh, we want police officers to do, or the court can take kind of a a step in limiting exceptions, um, limiting the exception here, uh, where the court, where the police power is pretty expansive.
2: Well, right. And I mean, I would say the police can still have very broad powers, but they have to do it in a manner that's consistent with the Constitution. So if there's a true emergency the police can act. That's already settled by the court's presence. The question in this case is, the, is will the court bless this huge expansion of police power and say, it doesn't have to be an emergency. You can claim community tear caking and enter the home, you know, virtually anytime you want. Uh, and that's, I think, a very dangerous proposition.
0: And so David, just pressing into that a bit, Going to the practical consequences, I understand your argument in terms of the Fourth Amendment, but you mentioned that police have these other tools available to them in terms of exigency. That involves, though, a situation where there's criminal activity going on, right? And so the argument isn't that police would necessarily be able to solve a situation like in the Coniglia case, right? It's that they're just not allowed to do it, and whatever happens then happens right
2: no, I think so there's there's an exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement that's been recognized there's an emergency aid uh, exception, but the point of of the exceptions the courts have recognized is it's got to be an emergency, and you know even the police officers in this case didn't say this meets the emergency exception you know in, because it's not an emergency uh, you know we're in this position where the lower courts have uh, created this very massive exception to the protection the 4th amendment gives us uh, in our home and said you know we're going to give the you know this is from the court's ruling they said the police need elbow room you know they need discretion and again this is kind of gets the 4th amendment backwards the whole point of the 4th amendment was limiting law enforcement discretion we didn't you know we adopted the 4th amendment because we didn't want um, the indiscriminate search and seizures that, uh, that the colonists had suffered, and the legacy of the Fourth Amendment was uh, law enforcement had to be limited and couldn't have uh, sweeping discretionary powers. And it, this case really presents the question, will the court um, allow this nebulous exception that would kind of reintroduce the kind of indiscriminate discretion that the Fourth Amendment was designed to prevent?
0: And so the, the facts of this case, you know, might not arise every day as they did. I'm wondering, David, is there sort of a prototypical situation that you're worried about? Or is it just all kinds of intrusions across the board?
2: I mean, I, you know, I think once you open the door and say community caretaking is an adequate justification uh, for entering the home and then searching and seizing within the home, that opens up the door to a lot of different kinds of police intrusions. Uh, you could think of things like noise complaints. Um, you know, can the police come in and enter your house because there's been a noise complaint? Um, there are a lot of, I think, sort of petty matters that might give rise to police intrusions if you recognize that it doesn't have to be criminal at all, but simply a claim of community tear And again, the sort of fundamental point is There isn't really a limiting principle. Almost anything can be called community caretaking. Um, And that's extremely troublesome to say the police can enter the home, sort of the most protected location in Fourth Amendment law uh, on the basis of such an open-ended nebulous interest.
1: So we haven't had, um, you know, a lot of Fourth Amendment cases since the new justices have been on the court. Uh, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Um, I know it's always hazardous to guess uh, the way that the court's going to go um, in any case. But do you have any thoughts on or guesses as to where you know the justices might be um, thinking about this case?
2: You know, I mean, I'm. I'm not sure. I think, to so one thing, the justices are very interested in the protection of the home. This is actually the second case the court is hearing this term about when the police can enter the home uh, without a warrant. There was the Lang case, which was argued uh, in, in February, which which dealt with uh, hot pursuit of, of uh, persons accused of committing misdemeanors and whether that was a sufficient justification to entry the home. So they're very interested in the protection of the home. It's it's not, uh, it's not completely clear where how the court lines up in that. And I think certainly you see across the ideological divide there are justices who were very concerned uh, about creating new doctrines that give sweeping police powers. certainly in the Lang argument, That's sort of a concern that you heard both from Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch. Uh, And Justice Gorsuch has written, both when he was on the 10th Circuit and in some separate opinions he's written on the court, concerns about uh, giving police kind of new powers to enter the home. This case, unlike most, kind of poses some really far-reaching considerations, partially because, uh, you know, it's taking... uh, this doctrine that has existed in the past, but only really uh, in the automobile context where police have, you know, a lot of leeway and there are lots of searches that police can do to automobiles that they can't do to homes. So this is a pretty uh, big move to say we're going to take a doctrine that applies to cars and apply it to the home, which is kind of the hardcore of the Fourth Amendment.
0: Well, David, thanks for helping us to set up the case and Help us and our listeners understand what to look for when this case is argued.
2: Thanks
1: so much. So it's um, it's interesting that uh, David brought up the George Floyd um, incident because the the trial for that is going on right now, right, Jordan? That's something you've been detailed to.
0: It is. They're picking a jury slowly but surely, and there's been a lot of different moving parts to that case, kind of a scotus angle. Is somewhat of a random-seeming one, Neil Cottyle, the former acting Solicitor General, has actually joined up with the prosecution for the case and has been doing some argument there. So no matter where you go, you can't escape the Supreme Court. And a fun fact about this Coniglia case, Kimberly, that you mentioned when we were talking about it is on the First Circuit panel was... Retired Justice David Souter.
1: Yeah, you know something that's got me thinking is that um, you know we've seen all these calls for Justice Breyer to retire, and if he does, and he you know decides to sit on cases, there will be two Supreme Court justices hearing arguments in the First Circuit. That's amazing.
0: That would just be the cutest. They don't look incredibly <laughs> different from one another either, so it'd be kind of fun. They can walk <laughs> What? Around. They
1: look totally different.
0: So speaking of fungible jurists, as we mentioned at the top, (laughs) Merrick Garland finally got into a little job there. Um, For anyone who's been in a coma for the last five years or so, uh, first of all, (laughs) congratulations. And just so you know, when we're talking about Merrick Garland being confirmed, this is to... We moved him over to a, a different slot, over to the Attorney General. The Supreme Court gig did not work out. And so now I'm wondering, Kimberly, if we might finally get a Solicitor General nomination, something that we have still been waiting on. So,
1: Yeah, we have been waiting. um, And I'm eager to see who who Biden slots into that spot. I think one thing that we do know, though, which seems to be um, common knowledge, is who will replace Garland um, on the D.C. circuit. It seems like... um, they're going to give that spot to me so that
0: (laughs) personal news (laughs) you heard it here first so should we take this thing home
1: well that's going to do it for this week
0: and make sure to check us out on tiktok we got a series running there now for women's history month on the women's supreme court justices and for the latest check us out at news.bloomberglaw.com
3: Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So, if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey, learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.